This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash freelancers. Listeners of The Freelancer Show will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code freelancers at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 163 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. Eric Davis. Hey. Ruben Lerner. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're going to be talking about how to wind down a project. Reuven, you recommended this. Do you want to kind of give us some some context or, you know, start us off? Well, uh, so the context is every time I have a new fantastic client and I come home and I gush about it to my wife, she says, well, yes, but remember, the nature of the business you're in is that every project, even the best, is going to eventually end. And you have to remember that. And strangely enough, she's right. <laughs> Not strange enough that she's my wife and she's right, but, but like, I mean, it's true. It's something that I often have to keep in mind when I'm working on projects. And so here and there, I've had projects where, you know, for whatever reasons, sometimes I fire the client. Sometimes they just were interested in doing more work with me. Sometimes the schedules or budgets didn't match. And I've definitely had some experiences lately with sort of winding things down and trying to do it on as positive a note as possible, because, you know, both out of self-interest and trying to be polite. Um, and I was wondering, you know, maybe if you guys had some ideas about what what sort of do's and don'ts for when you're done with a project. And obviously, the way in which it ended, and the type of project it was, will um, you know will have some effect there as well. Yeah, absolutely. It totally depends on the kind of project for me. So most of my work is retainer based strategy engagements that are month to month. So usually, what happens is, I mean, honestly, those usually go on infinitely until. I cancel them. It almost can't think of one where the client fired me. But usually what happens is, you know, in one case, I had a conflict of interest between two clients or a potential conflict of interest between two clients. So I told the sort of newer client, so the one that had been with me for a shorter period of time, I was like, I can't, this is awkward and I don't even want the appearance of impropriety. So let's just part ways here. And, um, you know, go about our business separately. It was, um, totally, they, they thought it was, they were like, ah, it's not really a conflict of interest. And I was like, ah, I don't know. It maybe it isn't, but I don't even want to, I don't even want to get into that zone. And, uh, the client that I had had for the longer time was, you know, in for a few reasons, a better client match for me. So, uh, it wasn't too hard of a decision to just walk away from that, the newer client. And then in another case, just like, you know, we were going to have our second baby and I had a long-term retainer client that required that I traveled once a month and it was going to be too much, 
you know, for my wife to deal with two kids. So I basically just said, look, you guys, this has been awesome. I love you guys, but I get this life change going on and I got to stop the traveling. So again, let's part ways, but it was a super positive note. And in fact, I'm in touch with them now that it's been a year and a half, almost two years. Um, they're talking about having me come back. So, but those are, if you look at like something like a software project, it's much trickier. So if you have a software project, you're like, okay, here's the scope and you're all excited at the beginning. It's like a new relationship and everything's rosy. Everyone's going to get back to each other immediately. There's not going to be any delays or anything like that. It's going to be a perfect project. And you go through the project eventually turns into a forced march to hell at some point, whether it's the launch or whatever. Uh, there's some, some rubber meets the road portion of the software project that gets super hectic and, um, you know, voices sometimes get raised and it's right near the end of the project usually. So that can be, you know, I think that sort of separates the, the pros from the, the amateurs stages like that. And then at the end, so this is part of my consulting practice that really helps me in situations like this where I get paid up front. I'm not waiting to send that final invoice. So I'm not waiting for the customer to say, okay, we're finally done and we'll pay that last invoice, you know, after you do this <laughs> punch list of 50 things and change the way the login works and all that stuff. So I've already been paid. The product then launches or the website launches or whatever it is launches. And we go into the, so there's this phase where like I, I like to tell people, I tell clients when we start like software projects, eventually it is safe it is eventually it is stable, but you never know exactly at what point it became stable. And I liken it to a pond freezing. Like at a certain point, you know, you can drive your mm. car out there, but you're not sure exactly what day that happened. You just know that it did happen. So what the end of a software project for me is this long tail of minor requests that slowly dribble out and are eventually over. So it, which is I think very unusual because most people who are billing by the hour weekly in arrears or something like that, they're desperate to get sign off on the last piece, whatever the last piece is, so that they can get that final maybe 50 or, or 30% payment at the end. But for me, I, I avoid that whole thing by just getting paid up front and letting the client continue to ask for my help as time goes on. You know, they might need a little bit of maintenance. They might need some handholding for, you know, the, the handoff to the new developers. They, you know, they don't understand why I did a particular thing in the JavaScript a particular way. So they can just email me if they want. So mine kind of just dribble out. Yeah, I have to say that's the thing I like about the, you know, the weekly billing or the, you know, get paid all of it up front is that, yeah, you don't get into those situations. I've also been in the situation where it was an ongoing, you know, hourly billing in arrears where it was, hey, we've got this basically backlog of work that we want you to work on and we want it all to move ahead, but then you know, the team wasn't managed well, so I couldn't actually get any work done because it turned out that I'd spend a week working on something that somebody else had been working on, but they hadn't claimed it. And so I claimed it. And then they came to me and said, Hey, I was working on that. And you know, blah, 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 you know, or, you know, another client, I had a situation where I was kind of taking on their pet projects. And then, you know, Again, things just didn't quite work out as far as, you know, them knowing what they wanted me to do next, but they knew they didn't want me working on the backlog. And so what I should have done is I should have pulled the plug and said, hey, look, you're not getting the value that you should be out of me. But, you know, I didn't. And so then things kind of went weird. So 
if things aren't working out, how do you have that conversation so that you can either quit or get it back on track? One thing I'll do is that uh, sometimes during the course of the V1 of the project, all these ideas will come up that if I wasn't careful would turn into scope creep. And uh, instead I say, let's put that on the, you know, put that in the parking lot for version two. And when version one's done, then we'll start a new project and work on the version two features. And if you're getting sick of the project dribbling out like that, um, you can say at some point, like, like, all right, seems like everything's stable. You know, the support requests have kind of trickled out. There's maybe one here and there. Let's call this done. And I'll do a quote for, you know, the version two features that you want. And sometimes that will give people closure that v1 is done like everybody agrees that it's done the, the the lake is frozen solid and it's okay to move on to the next thing it's rare for me working on a project to have anyone say okay we are done with version one let's move on to version two it's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a mu- right like basically there's just always because we're all agile right so agile means that we've just got this infinite backlog and every week we'll just attack whatever we can and we'll edge closer to something that is what we want, which is always infinitely in the distance. But the so, interesting thing about that mm-hmm. is that that ties in tightly to the way that you build, though. Mm-hmm. You, you couldn't do a fixed bid like that. Yeah. Right, that's true. Although you could do, I guess, like, a, right, we can be a fixed bid, it could be a weekly bid, where you just sort of, every week you say, we're going to chip off whatever we can. But when you do that, I agree that you can do that, but when you do that, do you guys find it hard to keep up the value perception in the mind of the client or do they start to view it? Don't they just start to view you as a cost? I think it depends a lot. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I've, I've been on some, I I make it very clear when I'm talking with them, like, okay, you know, this week, what's the most valuable thing. And that could be something we thought about six months ago, or it could be a new idea we just had. So I always bring it back to like, where's the business value? You know, how's this going to benefit you? And I mean, sometimes they do get kind of stuck in the mud and see it as like, you know, oh, we just have some of your time. But when it starts getting to that point, I start really talking to them and trying to address the, okay, maybe actually having me work on this project isn't the most valuable thing. We need to, you know, take a break for a couple of weeks, months, maybe a year or so, and let you rethink about what you're doing here. You know, do like the version two, even if it is a weekly billing type setup. Yeah, Yeah, digest the work. The other thing is, is that, a lot of times if I can get the client to meet weekly or, you know, at least regularly, which has been a problem for me in the past, but in the, you know, I have had clients where that's the case. So it's okay. Well, this week the plan is to do this. Is that worth whatever the weekly rate is? And so I'm essentially keeping the value discussion going as, you know, as if this week is a project. And so it's, you know, you said you want X, Y, and Z done on the project we're doing weekly billing, is that worth what you're paying for the week? And then if things don't work out that week, then I start having the conversation where, you know, it basically works out to, okay, this happened, this is what we're doing, but, you know, that's the conversation about, you know, there was unforeseen stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, I want to say it was on, what are they, they're called Basecamp now, 37 Signals, uh, Sales to Noise blog. A while back there was a post, it was basically along the lines of, Stop giving estimates in terms of hours and give it in terms of budget. So instead of saying this will take 10 hours, say this will take $2,000. And so that really lets the, the idea is that that lets the client actually say like this feature is it worth $2,000? Yes or no. Instead of is it worth 10 hours? And even if they have to do mental math in their head with the hourly, like it's a, I think it's enough of a disconnect that it's confusing. I, I, I'm not sure whether it's an Israel thing, a cultural thing, or my client thing, 
But basically, every time I've tried to say to them, this will cost, you know, X. And they say, well, how long will it take? I say, well, you know, maybe like two days. They're like, oh, well, that's what you're charging per hour? <gasps> that's a lot. <laughs> right? The, the, their goal is always to find a way to make it, uh, you know, an hourly charge so they can tell me I'm call- charging them a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of folks do that because they're getting other bids from other people on a per hour basis. And so they're trying to compare your cost to everybody else's cost as though, you know, an hour of your work is equivalent to an hour of their work, which isn't necessarily the case. Eric raised the notion of pricing a feature so that the business can make a business business decision about the value of the particular feature. And I really like that idea because it puts the conversation in the right place. It's like, I always liken that to like fixing your car, fixing your house, especially the car though. It's like when I was younger, I'd always have a junker and you bring it into a place. And I had this great mechanic that would be like, you know, there's a bunch of things where I bring it in for like a, whatever, flat tire or, or something. And they'd say they'd fix it and they'd be like, you know, there's some other stuff going on here, but you'd be better off buying a new car than paying me to fix it. And the thing that, really irks me about hourly estimates is that it's like the guy saying, well, this thing is broken. I don't know how long it's going to take me to fix it, i.e. I don't know how much it's going to cost you to fix it. Do you want me to fix it? And like, I can't, I don't know. It depends on how much it's going to cost, right? It's like, you don't want to pay $10,000 for him to fix the transmission on a $400 car. So I feel like it's a really strong parallel to software development where if you just say, you know, as the developer, you're like, I don't, I don't really know. I think it's going to take 50 hours, but I don't really know. And I'm not going to let you hold me to it either, but we could start working tomorrow and we'll see how it goes. I can't believe anybody accepts that deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, is I see a lot of people boil things down to hours and I think it's because the other people they're talking to are quoting them hours. And so, you know, they're talking to, you know, if they're shopping around, they're talking to other freelancers that are billing per hour. And so they want to boil it down because one of my hours is equivalent to somebody else's hours, apparently. But it's not. It's no, so- I totally agree. But And it's frustrating. But at the same time, well, that guy's only 30 bucks an hour. Okay, fine. You know. Well, so I use that to my advantage. I say, yeah. I said, you're going to shop this around. You're going to get quotes from other people. And they're going to give you estimates. And what that means is you don't actually know how much it's going to cost. So you get six months in and the budget's gone and they're not done yet. Is Are they really any cheaper than me who's telling you up front how much it's going to cost and won't charge you a dime over that no matter how long it takes me? Mm-hmm. And I surface the truth of what's going on, which is the other people are putting all the risk on the client and I'm putting all the risk on me. And if you if you don't bring up the risk, they'll always pick the hourly because the hourly will always be a lower quote. Yeah, because they're not paying for the risk. Right. And I mean, that's like, I've been doing weekly and I've been, you know, talking with a bunch of clients with it. And, you know, sure, they are still taking a good amount of the risk because, you know, if there's uncertainty, like if something takes longer than I thought, I'd still charge them for those extra time. But the nice way of, I don't, I don't think it's just the way I'm building, but I think it's how I'm doing the work itself is that it's helping in that, you know, I'm taking on some risk because I'm actually committing to doing something. And I've had stuff where I might say it takes four hours to do, but it takes me eight hours. Where instead of, you know, saying, telling the client, oh, I need more money, I'll work at night. You know, I'll make it up on my own time. And because they're buying a week, you know, it still stays within that billing amount. 
And they also get some of the benefit if I'm faster, like we're talking a different time, Jonathan, like I've been really good on my estimates and been actually coming in under on almost everything I'm doing now. And so that actually means I commit to my client for, you know, these five days worth of work, but I actually get six or seven done in that time, which, you know, I might, I should be able to capture because I'm specialized, but I'm actually passing the benefit onto my client. So even though I might be more expensive than someone that's charging a flat $30 an hour, they're getting a ton more work from me and, you know, more efficiency. They're also getting it probably earlier, like calendar wise than the other person. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's it's hard though, because you have to balance, like there's so many variables and they don't know, you don't know, you know, there's a whole bunch of different risks. And I think that's why there's so many different models because, you know, contractor A versus freelancer B versus consultant C, they're all giving the client something actually different, but the client can only compare, you know, one to two to three and it's different, you know, even though the risk is at different profiles. Yeah. And different kinds of customers will put up with that uh, more or less. So like government and higher ed, they've got a procurement process that forces them to compare apples to apples. So they won't even consider you in a lot of cases if you won't give them an hourly rate. So I just make sure to go after customers that are not that rigid and can be flexible in their buying decisions and, you know, do my best to say, look, you can hire, I already said, I mean, you can hire people by the hour, but, you know, realize that you're taking on a gigantic risk, you know, for a big project. For a big project, that's a huge risk, especially if it's a, a sort of a mission critical thing for the company or it's their product, their key core product is this piece of software. That's a giant risk. So, you know, most, the bigger the company is, the less they like risk and the more they'll pay to avoid it. So and I think the how, how you're billing and how, you know, that sort of part of it's structured really come like that's going to change how you're going to end a project. You know, the hourly, the, I'm going to call them time based. Those are more akin to projects that just kind of pitter out, mm-hmm. you know, fixed ones, obviously like, you know, you have set deliverables, you have set milestones once they're delivered and, you know, maybe signed off for that part's done. You bill, you have your wind down. I mean, you might do a different process for the wind down, but I think the way you're billing and kind of the way your company does, really, I don't know. If, is there a term for it? I mean, onboarding is getting a client started. I mean, is there a term for like outboarding where you're, you know, this is the stuff we do to, to pass on a project, give it to, give it to the client's team or whatever it is. I usually refer to that as the handoff phase, but uh, yeah. I don't think there's a good term for it because there's some other things you should do there besides the handoff. Like, I don't know, ask for referrals and a bunch of other things, mm-hmm. potentially oh, offer them a maintenance offering. If there is going to be a low level of ongoing support maybe you have to train their customer service department on intricacies of the interface or there's some stuff it's a prototype type of thing and there's some stuff where they are going to need a developer's intervention to really get under the hood and fix some messed up data in the database or or something like that then you could say oh well here's this maintenance agreement there's probably a handful of things that that would make sense to do at the end of a project and therefore it would be in at least in my best interest to not let it just peter out like that yeah. Like I know for myself, what I try to do is once uh, most clients will book, you know, maybe two weeks seems to be like a good amount, but some will book more, some will book less, but you know, usually the, I'll end on a Friday, the next Wednesday after I'll send an email, like checking in on them for like, is there any urgent things that came up? And then depending on the project, you know, maybe a month, two months down the road, I'll do a follow-up just to check in. And we were talking about this in chat. A lot of my projects are spike it, launch it, and then I'll come back and do maintenance. Um, one client I've been working with for, what is it, I think it's like eight or nine years now, you know, basically since I started, I think we've settled into a pattern of every six months or so, I do a week or two for them to kind of clean up stuff, do a little bit of feature work, and just kind of maintain the system. 
And so it's really good if you have kind of a process of like follow up with a client. That's, it's a lot easier to like land repeat work if it's someone you've already worked with and it's in a system you've already worked in or a process you've already worked in. Um, and I think that's really important. I know a lot of people forget that and it, it actually hurts the client because the client now has to go back out, find someone new, you know, vet the person, bring them into the project to deal with kind of the, the slow onboarding of like a new consultant before the client starts getting value. But if they could mm-hmm. just hire you to come do it, you know, it's so much better for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Your risk is then, well, for me, if I was going to give them a, you know, $4,000 to do that next thing, I would be able to deliver that so much faster than anybody they'd be able to find. And I, knowing the system inside out, you know, I could probably take a really good guess at how long it's going to take me to do it and charge them less than somebody from the outside, deliver it faster and do the least amount of work that anybody would ever need to do to do it. Cause I just know right where to jump in, change that one line and be done. And yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, doing repeat business on a system you've already built is like perfect. It's a dream all the way around. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I mean I've, I've had a case where I've sent a, a client that I worked with, you know, this was actually like the, you know, the next Wednesday I sent them like a literally a one sentence email, just you know checking in on it and two or three emails into it. Maybe, maybe 10 sentences total in the entire conversation booked a five figure project. You know, wow. it's because we had that trust. We had that stuff working together. We were uh, jailed really good. All that It's just short email and you could book it. And I think that's a really good way to wind down a project by basically winding up another one, you know, whether it's right away or in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I'm still billing mostly hourly with my, uh, I mean, not the, um, not the training work, but the consulting work, the project work. And I've definitely found that it sort of peters off, right? So they'll have me do 10 hours, well, maybe let's say 40 hours one month, and then 20 hours the next month, and then 10, and then five. And at some point, like, I just don't hear from them. And I, I, it's clear from what you guys are saying that I need to remember to be in touch with them on a regular basis, even if it's just to sort of check in with them and say, hey, what's going on? And I think I used to be better at that maybe about two years ago when I would regularly, like every month, email all the clients from whom I hadn't heard in a while say, hey, you know, I still got some time left next month. And this was good for me and for them because it would fill up my time and it would remind them that I exist. Mm -hmm. And since basically I've filled up and focused on training, that hasn't happened. That hasn't been necessary. But I still have an employee who's working on projects. It probably would be a smart thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking this idea from someone else. I have yet to do it, but they basically have a, a client mailing list. So not like the standard mailing list you see. But this is like people they've worked with that have actually paid them money. And I think they even filter it of like, these are people we want to work with again. So if it's a bad client, mm-hmm. they don't invite them. But either, I don't know if it's at the beginning of the project or near the end, they invite them to it. And it's very low frequency. I would say probably like once a month or maybe even every other month, depending. And it's like giving them value for, you know, the industry that they, that, that group works in. It's any events, whatever. And there's kind of the soft call to action of, Hey, we have some time coming up in November or, you know, Hey, we launched a new, a new service offering. But that lets them kind of have those touch points. And from what I understand, it actually has worked very good for them. Um, it's very, very easy to do. It's going to be a, like for most freelancers, I would say if you have two or three dozen people on there, like you're, you're doing booming business. Like it's going to be a very small list, but it's going to be a very, very high value list per subscriber. Right. Yeah. That sounds great. One thing I do, and this is because, you know, I still do mostly software development is near the end. I try to launch before the project's over. So if it's a multiple week project, like launched a week before. So we have a week post launch to do, you know, just standard fixing stuff. But I try to really transition like 
if I have any accounts under my name or my business name, transition it to the client. If I have access to different places, I even if I keep access, I make sure that the client has it. They have documentation of how to get it. Basically, along the lines of if I disappear, whether I because I'm busy or, or something happens to me personally or whatever, the client has documentation written by someone who created the system or worked on it that they can hand off to the next freelancer. You know, so it's kind of like a transition plan. I think that's something important. Doesn't have to be very much. I might put together a document that's mostly like links and stuff like that. That's like 500 words long. But every time I give it to a client, they value it very highly because that's like, you know, here's a good documentation of, you know, the system as it stands from a high level. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I would put in the quote at the beginning to pump up the value perception. And, uh, Perhaps interestingly, one, a, a technique that I use to do the handoff is I'll record a screencast of me walking through the system and sort of saying like, here, there's some bodies buried yeah. over here. Here's why, you know, I try, I try to write very self-documenting code anyway, but it really helps to have somebody hold your hand and just walk through the system, see the logins, not the passwords, but I mean, see where stuff is see how I had my development environment set up, all that stuff. It's, you know, usually, you, uh, I'd say it usually is like an hour long video, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it gives them something to, you know, it gives them a, some kind of path to, like you said, if I disappear or, or, or like I did do, I changed the nature of my business to do a lot less software development. I'm not going to go back and start jumping back into those systems almost surely. So that gives them something to go to without having a bug me about it when I probably can't even remember a year later. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Like a uh, recent client I did, it was there was a lot of schedule problems. So we still had regular meetings, but it was very time constraints, time constraints on it. And so what I ended up doing just of my own choice um, is I recorded like very short, like under five minutes screencasts of different features as I finished them. Like this is how login works. These are, you know, here's the admin panel. Here's how you do X, Y, Z. And just basically it was just like, hey, I just want to show you what I'm working on. Um, and that ended up through the project becoming the official training documentation that they're going to give to their entire organization now. Um, oh, that's great. But one, yeah, one thing that came out too. of it was they're, they're on Heroku and Heroku is, it's user friendly, but it is still very technical. I mean, it's a hosting environment. Um, and they have their own account. So what I did is I basically recorded like, if you find the applications having problems and you can't get a hold of me, here's how you log into Heroku. Here's how you scale it up. If you, if you're getting this kind of errors, here's where to look for errors. Here's how to invite another developer if you need to bring someone else in. Um, and basically gave them and handed it to like the office manager. And she was like, Oh, this is amazing. Like I, we now have the ability and the control over our application. And this organization is very non-technical. And so like for them, that's like gold, but it took me five minutes to record and talk through and it's stuff I know intuitively. Yeah. Right. I, it's, it's doing those screencasts is huge. I'm surprised that more people don't do it. It's so easy too. If, if anybody's ever tried to type up documentation, it's torturous. But doing a screencast just doesn't take much time at all. And here's actually a value add. You gave me an idea, which I'll probably do. Do a, do a bunch of screencasts like this and then pay the 30, maybe 100 bucks to get transcripts of the screencasts. So they're searchable and they have a, yeah. a, a written step by step document. Oh, that's really smart. Nice. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I definitely find that he, even when I fired a client, and even when I find them to be annoying, slimy, treating me poorly, I still really try to put a good face on it. You know, I say, well, I don't want to work with you anymore. It's not working out. All sorts of different things. But I always feel like, you know, it's a small technical world, especially in Israel, but just in general. And if I 
treat them poorly, if I just if I let my anger show, then it's just going to bite me at some point. And maybe that I do that sort of to a fault. Maybe maybe they can see through it. <laughs> like maybe they know that I'm really annoyed that they paid me late or whatever it was. But you know, several times I've been really tempted to sort of slam the door as it were and say, "Oh, you! I don't want to ever work with you again. It was terrible." But I figure yeah. one of these days it'll come back to haunt me. I think the worst client partying experience I've had was we finished the project like it was. I don't know if it was fixed bid or it was fixed scope or something, but we finished it up. There was a lot of arguments. They were actually cussing at me, which basically went over the line. And I told them, I'm like, look, I mean, I've delivered what you needed. You were, were satisfied with the f- version one. I don't think we're a good fit. I don't want to do version two for you. And basically parted ways. Um, I, I myself, I'll never work with them again. And if I hear anyone who's working with them, I'd shy them away from it because it's uh people problems. It's not so much the software we're working with, but, uh, you know, even then, you know, I gave them what they wanted. They paid me on time. Everything was delivered. They had all the code, all that, you know, the project was a success, but, you know, basically because of circumstances of a repeat project was a no go. But other than that, like everything's been great, like passing stuff off the clients. You know, one thing I've, I'm running into a little bit is, you know, a month after the project's done, having the client come back to you and want some changes here and there, um, even if they pay for it or not. And that's kind of a hard thing to balance just with scheduling. Like, how do we get that in? And is that enough work to actually put it on my calendar or not? Right. Yeah, I mean, I hardly ever do it, but I have recently done maintenance type stuff where we knew there was going to be a lot of that. Uh, so I just came up with a price and it was cool. Like they would just put to do's into base camp and I would just fix the stuff. But, uh, it is hard because you don't know if the volume is going to be there or not. And kind of want to hook them up because you know there's going to be more work in the future. It's a little tricky there. Yeah. So what I've done with oh, some clients is I'll, I'll have them start a list of, you know, what they want in V2 and then, when it gets closer, we'll get on a 30, 60 minute sales call, but it's more of like a, a roadmap, like very, very high level, like of what could we fit in? What, what makes sense to fit in? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and book, you know, another week or two weeks or however long they need at that point. But yeah, like if it's just like minor piece, no work, it's very hard to like, you know, make them commit to a full week or try to bump a client around. It's just, it's, it's a hard balance to make. And especially if it's like small work, but it's like business critical, like the pressure gets pretty high there. Yeah, if possible, I like the idea of collecting all of the, you know, like, let's just let these things collect for six months and then do a project and like pick the ones that are the highest business value. So we're not just doing some low value stuff today and high value stuff comes up next week. But if it's business critical, then there's no way, no way around that. Just got to decide. You, you, you mentioned before that when you finish up a project, you try to get uh, referrals from people. So obviously you have like, because of the, the nature of your billing practice, you have a very clear end to these sorts of things. But how do you do that? As you say, well, you know, you say, well, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess we're finishing up and I'm going to give you some, you know, screencast walking through things. Do you say, do you know other people who could use my help? Do you just ask them straight out, please give me the names of other people? Do you ask for introductions? Yeah, I'm not really good about it at the end of the project. When I was bringing that up, I was like, oh, that would be good because then I'd be better about it if there was like an offboarding process mm. that I had in mm-hmm. place. Usually what I do... I have an approach with referrals that's a little bit, uh, I guess I would call it very soft sellish, but I kind of just reach out to past clients or colleagues who are aware of the kind of work that I've done. And I'll just hit them with like, uh, Hey, you know, something fell out of my calendar and I've got unexpected opening next month. Do you know anybody who might need my kind of assistance? Then maybe it's somebody they know. And, but usually what happens is they will spin up a project. It's more like, 
Eric's email of like, hey, I just wanted to check in six months later and see how it's going than mm-hmm. an actual ask for a referral. Although I will say with coaching, not so much with my main strategy stuff, but with coaching, I have been better about asking for referrals. Hey, do you know anybody that's in a situation like the you think would benefit from this? And it's a lot easier because it's a little bit more productized and it's very easy for people to recognize other people who are in the same boat they're in where my strategy clients, like the type of businesses they are is like really wildly varied. Even though I try and target specific ones, I still get leads all over the map for some reason. So it's, I don't know, it doesn't feel like as great a fit. Maybe I'm just being lazy, but uh, it, it's, it just always feels, I always like, I feel like they'd be like, I don't know who to refer you to. You know, the mm-hmm. only other people we know in our business are our competitors. <laughs> We're not gonna- well, I was going to ask that. Like, if you're working with these large retailers, yeah, right? So what well, what is Walmart going to say? Well, <laughs> we, we hear that Target would be a great customer right. for you. <laughs> yeah, it feels, maybe I'm just imagining it, but that's the awkwardness that I feel, which has kind of prevented me from going down that path. And to be honest, I mean, the retainer clients, they are all like multi-year clients. It hasn't, I haven't really needed to. I'd probably still be, you know, working with the one that I, you know, if I didn't, I, you know, I want to use the word fired. I don't want to use that term, but if I didn't stop working with that one that I mentioned when, uh, you know, Maggie was born, probably have two more years of five figures a month from them that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it just go on forever. I was basically, I was almost like, you know, an employee they should have hired. Like they should have filled the position with someone that they had, you know, had me on for five years. I mean, but, one thing you can do in that circumstance is, I don't know if it works in your case, Jonathan, but for others is, you know, if you did a work for one company, you might ask, you know, if they have another department that could use your work, you know, so you stay within the company so they don't get that competitor problem, but you go and work with someone else and you can get a direct, you know, probably if you're good to the decision maker, to the person who would write the check of that other place. And so it's, it works like a referral or almost even a repeat client at that point. And that might be a good way to, you know, move along. You just have to be careful. Like all of your work talk isn't coming from one actual company itself, even if it's different divisions. Right. That's a great idea. That's actually straight out of Alan Weiss's playbook too. So that's, I'm sure that would work great. I don't know. It just, the, the, I'm thinking to the specific situations, like all of that stuff makes sense on paper, but I'm thinking the specific engagements and just one, I can't imagine it happening. Oh, I can think of a training gig. Maybe Ruben, this is good for you. Like training people aren't typically in competition with each other the same way that like a strategic engagement would be. And I've definitely gone to people I've done just sort of like one off internal private talks or training workshops and asked for referrals. It hasn't really gotten me anywhere. But it's a better fit, product fit. Well, what I did just, I mean, earlier today. So, I mean, within a, this is sort of uh, merging the, what the two of you have said. So, I mean, I work with a lot of these large companies. So, like today, I was training uh, on site at SanDisk in uh, Far Saba in Israel. And, you know, I'm talking to the head of training there. And um, she mentioned something about, oh, yes, uh, well, you know, we're in charge of training in, in Europe as well. And, and then starts talking about some story about the people she dealt with in Europe. And I was like, well, you know, I don't mind doing training in Europe. <laughs> not, not, men- not mentioning to her that I know the budget is four times per day what they pay in Israel. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, and I mean, they're budgeting for that, so they don't care, and, and I do. So she said, oh, well, that's good to think about. I'll, I'll definitely keep that in mind. And, you know, just sort of raising this possibility then starts the ball rolling. And I figure if I remind her in a month or two, then it, it might still be of interest. So, 
often these people are either in charge of or working with other departments where they see it as a benefit to their company. Mm. I would have gone one step farther in that situation and asked for a name. Well, she's the name. She's in charge. Oh, oh, okay, great. Perfect. But yeah, right. So like with Cisco, for instance, I'm in touch with a woman who does training for everywhere outside of the U.S. Mm. So she's been fantastic. And I said to her, so can you introduce me to the person in charge of U.S. training? And she said, no, <laughs> I'm keeping you for myself. Uh, for the fact that she keeps me so busy and happy and I'm happy to work with her that I really, you know, I'm not too upset about it. That's good. So I had one point I wanted to get to actually was looking earlier and found like a, no, I don't use this. I forgot about it, but it's a process document of like how to close out a project. And one thing I had ideas on, and I've done this a little bit informally, but you hand off the project, wind it down for the client, but you need to do stuff for yourself too. You know, and there's the standard stuff you think about, like make sure all the bills are paid and all that. But one thing I was looking at is one thing is to think about what you liked about the project, didn't like about it, and what would you change about it. And I, I have three facets for that, both for the client, for the project itself, like what you're you know doing or building. And then like if there's any like technical aspects, like, oh, we shouldn't have used this library or whatever. I think that's really interesting because then you can really get perspective and figure out like, okay, this was a good project, but the client didn't fit very good because of X, Y, Z. So the next client I look for, I need to watch for that thing. Mm. I thought that was interesting. And one thing I, I do do a lot of is, you know, make a to-do item or try to write stuff down while the project's so fresh about if I'm going to put it in my portfolio or if I'm going to try to get a testimonial where I'm going to put it, you know, all that stuff to kind of build up my own uh, reputation outside of the project. Kind of like a postmortem just for yourself. Yeah. And this part doesn't apply to me as much anymore, but um, if there's parts of the project or even the project itself, that if it could be open source, I would do that. Because I, I used to have in my contract that all the code would be open source. So, you know, once it was done and delivered and the client was happy, I would, you know, open source it as a V1 and then, you know, use that, feed it back into my marketing machine that I had going around it. Did you guys ever finish a project in a way that you thought was bad that you don't want to return to? The pittering um, out was really bad for me. Um, just the mm-hmm. uncertainty of, okay, can I schedule more client work or are they going to come back with a full week of work, you know, come Monday? I've, I always like the start, stop, you know, or here's the end date. That works good for me. I mean, you guys know I'm very structured and organized. So like that's, that fits for me. If it's, you know, hey, we have some stuff, we'll get to you later. Like I, I can't work under that environment. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of one that was like a train wreck, but maybe I'm just blocking it out now. <laughs> but, you know, I usually have another either client a project for another client starting up after the projected end of the first one or another project for that same customer. So I'll let them know if it's just rambling on too long and it's really disruptive to my schedule, like Eric was just saying. I'll be like, okay, you guys, but the, the project's over and I've got other stuff on my calendar that's ramping up. So my responsiveness is going to be lower. I'll get to this stuff, but my responsiveness is not going to be as good. And it's almost like you're weaning them off of you. So they're like, oh, I can't just pick up the phone and get an instant answer anymore. Now I have to wait a week. And then the calls get farther and farther between. Right. I mean, I definitely feel like, I mean, thinking back even over the last six months, I mean, even just last week, I met with a client or two weeks ago, I met with a client to talk to them about doing some training and I've been doing some consulting for them. And I was meeting with one of the managers and uh, we, we said hi, or I said hi to one of the engineers. And the engineer was like, oh, Ruben, you're around. You know, we have some questions we could ask you about. And the manager says to him, well, you know, we have a budget. Why don't you just call him in? I'm thinking to myself, huh, so they had these problems. They didn't even think about it. And because I didn't remind them, because I didn't sort of wind things down with the previous round in the right way, 
we were all sort of just sort of waiting for each other or waiting for lightning to strike. Mm. And and I definitely could have, you know, pushed that or, or by having a, a, I guess, off-boarding experience more formalized, it, it would have avoided that. I think the worst endings that I've had to contracts basically boil down to we get done, everybody's smiling, you know, I give them all the information that I think they need about the code, and then they never do anything with it. That just drives <laughs> me absolutely crazy. <laughs> and so then, you know, a year or two down the road, it's like, oh, we started using your thing, and ah, <laughs> well, I don't remember what I did, or they just never, ever actually launch it. So wait, like the like you, you built them an app and it never launched, or you did some stuff and it never was integrated, or both. I've I've got both. So I've oh, got wow. I've built several custom social networks for people. I've only had one of them actually launch. And then I built a library that tracked changes across different versions of basically EPUBs, and you know the, the ebook format, and. Yeah, I see those guys on occasion because they're they're a local company based in Salt Lake, and every time I talk to them, I get a we're super happy with your work, but we haven't hooked it up to anything yet. <laughs> yeah, that's really kind of annoying. I was on a project where we were it was a team of people doing a, a front end for a website, and then it was going to get handed off to a back end team to integrate with what's it called WordPress VIP. Mm-hmm. So that one was interesting because there was a lag time between when the back end people started working on it. And so, so we were kind of like, okay, we're done. Like we handed it off. Here's all the stuff. A couple of weeks go by, n- nothing. And then we got this flurry of questions about the integration. And then once it went live, we got another flurry of questions about, you know, basically bugs that, um, you know, were someone's fault, probably ours. But it could have been the integrators, who knows. But, you know, we were definitely the ones getting the fingers pointed at us. So that was probably one of my least favorite situations if we're talking about winding down projects because it got really busy after everybody had moved on. So, like, the team, it was a virtual team. And we, not that we disbanded, but, you know, we all went off onto our separate ways. And all of a sudden, the client was like, you know, ah, hair on fire. Anyway, Chuck's story, that reminded me of Chuck's story when somebody implements something way after the fact and they never actually tested it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me. Like, I'm trying to think almost all of mine have been launched or success as far as the project is. Like, the business success might fail for other reasons or, you know, might fall down on whatever. Other than like that one I talked about earlier where it's just, it wasn't a good fit for, you know, the second version of the project and we just went our separate ways. And I think a big part of that is I'm very... I at least try to be, try to be very, very careful of, am I working with someone who has just this idea? Like I want to build a startup or am I working with a business? And so I select for people who either have revenue, have existing businesses or, you know, basically where I can not guarantee, but it feels like the project success is going to be a, a bit better of a chance than like a, a startup idea that's just trying to launch and hit a certain atmosphere. Ditto. I'm the exact same way. I feel like the startups are in a situation where they, they're either playing with monopoly money or they're not experienced enough to make a good business decision, even if I, I'm giving them fixed fees. So they, it scares me because I'm not confident that I'm going to be able to deliver great ROI. You know, I don't know if I can satisfy this customer. So it makes me nervous to get involved with either new businesses or just startups in general that are trying to do, you know, like, oh, I need you to make a prototype for we're going to go get funding. I'm like, I don't know, man. 
Right. And that's like, like I said earlier, is I try to value like, you know, these features to like justify the cost of the feature to the value of the business. And if it's, if there's so many unknowns, if there's no history there, it's really hard to figure out like, what's the value of letting users like a friend or whatever, you know, who knows? And so that's a billion dollars apparently. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, like it's, it's, it's harder to, to figure out. And for me, like I said, I don't, I don't like a lot of uncertainty. I think there's enough uncertainty in software projects as it is. Bringing in business uncertainty is like a nice little stew pot of disaster. And so if I can make choices in my business to make it more certain, I'll do that. And I think I've kind of selected for clients that work that way too. Yeah, totally. Same here. Identical. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with a lot of startups over the years and they definitely seem, I don't know, right, strangely price sensitive and and value insensitive. So, I mean, I just, I just, I mean, I, I'm still working with it, but this is, you know, a client of mine where they're great, they're nice, they're fun to work with, and they're in like the financial markets. And I asked them, so how important is this product to you? And they said, oh my God, we have clients who have said they will pay for it yesterday. They must absolutely have this. I was thinking to myself, great, they're in finance. Their clients want it yesterday. They, ha- they have paying clients already. And so I mentioned my, my billing rate by the hour, like, you know, on a daily rate. They were like, what? You want to charge how much? We could hire an engineer for a month for your three days. I said, yeah, but you'll, you'll get it done soon. Oh, no, 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 no. And then like we negotiated a little bit and then they finally said, forget it. We'll just call you in for a few hours here and there. And sure enough, that's what they've been doing. <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes I'm around and sometimes I'm not around. But right. I think if they had just said, let's go for it for a week and we'll bring you in, I think they would have already shipped as opposed to, you know, two months later, not having shipped. Yeah. Opportunity cost. Right. But they're really nice. And they have a spectacular view of Tel Aviv, so that's worth something. <laughs> and a really fancy coffee machine, which is, of course, French absolutely benefit. necessary. Right. It's, it's very important for the function of a startup. Of course, I don't drink coffee, so it doesn't impress me that much. Speaking of winding things down. <laughs> <laughs> is this our offboarding part of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I do want to cover one more thing, and that is if the relationship isn't going well, are, are there still things you can do to offboard it to make sure that things kind of come out in the best light? So yeah, if they're not I, I happy think, with you? I think it depends on what part's not going well. Um, I've had some projects where it's not going well because I don't have availability which just means they should find someone else or bring in another person. Sometimes the fit's not there. Like I, I can do the work, you know, they're a great client, but we're just not meshing. It feels like kind of conversations are stilted, you know, that sort of idea. Once again, try to refer it. I usually have probably about half a dozen other freelancers, developers, consultants at different spectrums of like what they can do, what their rates are. And so I'll refer, you know, either a specific person, if I know it'd be a good fit or give them the list, like here's people I know that are good. And I've kind of done a bit of vetting. You can talk to them. And whoever you bring on, I'll help you transition to that. Uh, sometimes, like, especially if it's budget or whatever, it's, you know, we just transition it and try to make it where, you know, maybe we cut the budget, maybe we cut the features back and do a more minimal project and try to just end it, end it early just by not doing as much work or even passing it off to like an internal team if they have it too. Yeah. I mean, I always tell, uh, clients, even the ones that I fire or that I'm unhappy with, you know, when I'm finishing, I say, listen, I'm committed, even though I don't want to, even though I don't want to work with you anymore. I, I think I phrased it a little better, but I'm committed to making sure that you succeed and I want you to succeed. So we can definitely, we will work with whoever you hire to hand things off and make sure things work well with them. And there's a smooth transition. And 
rarely do I actually hear from them asking me to help with such a transition. I think they're just so ticked off. But I feel good that at least I'm offering it. And I'm, I'm honest about offering it, too. In some cases, I even want to see them succeed. Yeah, I've had a couple where it wasn't in a bad situation. It was more of like they wanted their team to know. And I've taken, I think, a couple dev days and made it like hard training days for their team and showed them, you know, here's how you deploy. Here's how if you want to change code and kind of did a impromptu training session of like, you know, they'd go off for two hours, come back. I'd review their code with them, you know, all that just to get them comfortable so that they could basically support themselves as a business without me being around. You know, they actually came back and hired me to do some other heavy feature work while their team was supporting kind of the lighter stuff. So yeah, that's been a good one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of the problem solution. I mean, what's the problem? Why is it a, a bad situation? And then how would you actually solve it? Yeah. Trying to figure out how the situation got bad and, and how not to get into in the future. It's probably a good thing to do at the end. All right. Well, I think we better wind down. Uh, Ruben, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, I've got uh, one fun pick for this week. You might have heard that the U.S. is entering the uh, presidential election season, which I think is the same length as all other countries' elections put together. So so, uh, there's a new podcast done by some of the folks at Slate and other places called the Podcast for America, which is, I mean, it's definitely liberal-leaning, but it's so, so, so incredibly funny. If you're into political analysis or anything, it's just great. These reporters, these three reporters basically get to let loose with all the things they really believe about presidential elections and politics and what people are saying and not saying, and it's just a hysterically funny analysis. So I would uh, definitely recommend it to our uh, politically-minded listeners out there. All right, Eric, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have one. Um, I might have picked it before, but this is a repeat because it's really that good. It's an app, an iOS app. I don't know if it's for Android, but it's called HRV for Training. It stands for Heart Rate Variability for Training. The short thing is heart rate variability is kind of like your heart rate, like your pulse, but it's a bit different. You can really use it to see if you are exercising too hard, you know, the training aspect, all that. But lately, I've actually found that it's correlating very well with how good I'm sleeping or actually the lack of sleep that I'm getting. Um, meaning that it's telling me that because I'm not sleeping, because I'm working so much, I'm actually pushing it and my body's getting stressed out a lot more. Um, and I've looked back at it a little bit ago and it's actually predicted that I was going to get overwhelmed recently. And I actually did. I had to take a whole day off this weekend, just do nothing. It's a really good app, especially if you exercise. Um, if you don't, it's, it might be overkill, but it's really interesting. So if you like kind of the, what's that called? Uh, not practice self, whatever. Quantified it's, self. Yeah. Yeah. Quantified self. It's really good for that. The killer feature of this version is it uses your phone's camera to detect your pulse in your finger, uh, which is actually works really, really well. It's really accurate. And I actually think it's a lot better than actual full on heart rate monitor, at least in this case. Um, and so I've actually been doing it for, I think, over six months. I think it might be close to a year now. Got some really solid data. And like I said, it correlates with my sleep and also my training levels and then just stress in general. Very cool. Jonathan, do you have some picks for us? Yes. The first is, I don't know if people know, but I do a tech podcast with my co-host Kelly Shaver and it is called Terrifying Robot Dog. Uh, it's a weekly audio podcast where we talk about the way technology is changing the way we interact with the world. So we'll do, you know, gadget episodes and like really futuristic gadget episodes, usually stuff from Kickstarter that got funded. But we also talk about things like 
uh, the rise of conversational computing and what that might do to literacy in the world, what that might do for accessibility for people in emerging economies. And uh, we really try and be a little bit, it, it's not too sci-fi. We try to think a little bit into the future and try and make predictions about what we can do now to, or how that will affect society and what we can do now to uh, kind of get ready for that or maybe even steer that a little bit. Uh, so I'd love it if people check that out. And uh, speaking of Kickstarter, I've got a great one. I suppose everybody knows what a Keurig is, right? One of those pod-based coffee makers. The pod people make it? Uh, pod people, I believe pod, I have small people that, <laughs> but there is a booze version that is called Bartesian, <laughs> B-A-R-T-E-S-I-N. And it looks just like an espresso machine, except for it's got four sort of glass containers attached to the base on each side and, you know, for the four major types of booze. And then they've got these pods that you put in to make different flavors. So you can make like, it's basically just like a Keurig for cocktails. And, uh, it's a, it's a funded Kickstarter. They're, they start at like $2.99, which seems pretty inexpensive to me. And they look really nice. They look like a really nice espresso machine. So yeah, check that out on Kickstarter. It's pretty hilarious for people in the audience who like cocktails. <laughs> they really missed the naming opportunity though. They could have called it the keg egg. <laughs> that really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> All right. So that's, well, that's it for me. I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is so AJ O'Neill on JavaScript Jabber was harassing Mandy about her fiance's inability to buy video games because they just moved and, you know, so he's on a spending hiatus for video games. So if you want to go help him out, she's the one that edits the podcast and kind of makes things run around here uh, to a certain degree. So. If you want to go help out his game fund, he set up an Indiegogo campaign for that, and uh, I'm sure he would appreciate any donations you want to make. I'm also going to pick Downcast. I know I've picked it before, but I just got a new iPhone 6 Plus, and I really am enjoying uh, having Downcast sync everything up between all of my different places where I listen to podcasts. So um, I'm really liking that. And then the last one I'm going to pick is the Blue Aftershocks 2 or Blues 2 Aftershock. I don't remember. I'll put a link in the show notes. But basically, it's you've seen the kind of uh, behind-the-head headband um, headphones. Well, these ones are bone-conducting, and so I can actually hear stuff going on around me while I'm listening. So if I'm driving down the road with my kid or something like that, then, you know, um, I can hear them ask for treats while I'm listening to my podcast. So anyway, I really like them. I found that they don't work super well for things like mowing the mowing the lawn or anything like that, but other stuff, they're awesome. And I, I wear them running and stuff and they're, they're more comfortable than the in the ear earbuds because uh, my ears tend to get a little bit sore when I have them in for days on end. And so this is kind of a nice option for other listening. So mm. those are my picks. And yeah, I guess we'll wrap up. And uh, thanks for listening. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit 
C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 